HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the Food Sea on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Uh, very honored here today to have Sarah Moulton, um, multimedia queen of the food world. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, Michael, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, your face and your name and your influence has been over food media for, I would say, at least the past 20 years, maybe yeah. even longer. Well, I started when I was 12. Yeah. <laughs> And you had a big influence back then, too, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the golden child at 12. Right. But it took a while to get to there. Um, oh, yeah. And it, I never intended... All I intended to do was to become the best chef I possibly could be. Yeah. That was my goal. Yeah. But now you're making other people the best chefs they can possibly be. Well, I hope so. At least the best home cooks. Yeah. 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 Well, like we were saying just before, sometimes a chef having someone cook a nice homey meal for them is that much more pleasurable than going out to, you know, a four-star restaurant. I'd be so thrilled if anybody cooked for me, <laughs> honestly. And likewise, it's like sort of annoying that when I have somebody over for dinner, they really expect yeah. like the most amazing meal. Yeah. And I'm, I just can't, you know, it's too much work. I don't really want to spend six hours yeah. <laughs> That's when you of just my get free time. Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just you know, Chinese food for all. Yeah. Excellent. But I want to start at your beginnings. Um, you were born and raised in New York. Yes, I was, in New York City. Yeah, whereabouts? Yeah. Well, first in Peter Cooper and then in Gramercy Park. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what's your heritage? What's your background? What kind of food did you grow up amongst? Well, my, my mom was actually a really good cook. Uh, there, a lot of people were really good cooks. My grandmother was a really good cook. My aunt was a really good cook. But um, my mom started traveling to Europe when we got when she became 35 I don't remember I guess my sister and I were born at that point and my brother came along later and she, every time she came back she was so excited not only about the culture and what she'd seen because she'd never been to Europe till then but she wanted to eat the food 
So we got the New York Times cookbook, the Craig Claiborne yeah. one. So many people I've found, you know, you, that was their Bible, and that was our Bible. So she'd go to Greece, when, and, you know, back then nobody was serving, well, maybe some of the Greek restaurants, but we'd make spanakopita and moussaka and all that stuff and tzatziki, or she'd go to, you know, Spain and we'd make, you know, paella and all that stuff. Or she, And so we were always throwing these dinner parties. This is by the time I was in high school junior in high school and um you know we do the whole nine yards and so that's how i sort of got started but my grandmother on my dad's side we have this big old farmhouse now in northeastern massachusetts and in the beginning we just go out and visit my grandmother who had a house down the road that's how we ended up buying this farmhouse but she was an amazing cook too she actually went to cooking school in boston oh wow in in boston or in cambridge in boston yeah I'd, it wasn't the, the Fanny Farmer one. It was yeah. another one, like the Garland School of Cooking. <laughs> and she was an amazing cook. Yeah. So, you know, she, we made pies. You know, we did all that baking together, but also she'd make, you know, roast beef in Yorkshire. Yeah. We have sort of New England background. My parents are from the Boston area. Yeah. So, you know, Indian pudding and plum pudding and hard sauce and yeah. Johnny cakes and all that stuff. And so I grew up with all of that. So uh, I was always exposed to really good food. And my mom, it's so astonishing growing up in New York City, we're talking about the 60s you know she would be cooking with fennel fresh fennel <laughs> and um shad row and you know wild mushrooms i mean it was just amazing what she was doing how did she know yeah was it more the home cook or the restaurants using those ingredients because it's more the restaurants yeah. i mean really that was not something or endive you didn't find that in, yeah in, you know i mean we certainly also had our fair share of TV dinners, yeah. you know, like when they'd go out to dinner, we'd have TV dinners, and yeah. we thought that was fabulous with all the little compartments. But mostly, we ate really, really well because um, my mom was so good. Yeah, I mean, when did you get into cooking? Because it says here you went to the U of M for the what history of ideas? History of ideas, which was you know your usual bullshit. Yeah, nature. but what exactly was that? Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it was I was part of it was part of the University of Michigan. Um, it was this little college called the Residential College, and a lot of people ended up there by default because they thought that was the dorm, the Residential <laughs> College. As it turns out, it was a college unto itself, and it was very uh, the huge emphasis on creativity. It was sort of like a little hippy-dippy enclave at University of Michigan at a time when the whole place, Ann Arbor, was a hippy-dippy place anyway. Yeah. But it meant I took, um, we had no grades, just evaluations. And I took courses like Comparative Revolutions of Russia China, Russia <laughs> and China and Astrophysics and what we lovingly referred to as Boys and Girls in Books, which was about women's writing because it was huge feminist time yeah. then too. So I sort of, you know, like many people, just sort of um, grew up in college. I think you either grow up or you figure out what you're going to do. Yeah. And in my case, it was the former, not the latter. Yeah. But it was good. Yeah. You know, I, you know, it was great times to be there. It was a very exciting time to be there. Well, a few years after finding yourself, you ended up finding the Culinary Institute. Well, I didn't. My yeah. mother did. <laughs> Here's what happened. Back to good old mom. It's a year after I should have graduated from college because it took me a year to write. I had to write a thesis. I wrote it on Virginia uh, Wolf's To the Lighthouse. I don't know why. Hmm. But, I mean, I loved her. I thought she was an yeah. amazing writer. But anyway, so I'm, I'm hanging out in Ann Arbor, living with my boyfriend and cooking in a bar, slinging burgers. A wonderful bar, by the way, that's no longer called the Del Rio. And um, my mom thought, this will not do. My daughter must have a profession. Um, my parents were both like that. Yeah. So all three of us are like overachieving. But at any rate, um, so she wrote to Craig Claiborne 
from the New York Times cookbook <laughs> yeah. and to Julia Child, and Julia never got back to her, which is sort of odd because Julia always got back to everybody. Yeah. I mean, Julia was listed, so people would call her up on Thanksgiving Day and say, you know, my turkey's been sitting in the heated garage for three days, you know, and Julia would pick up and talk them through yeah. it. Basically tell them to throw it out, yeah. of course. But <laughs> any rate, so Julia didn't get back to her, but Craig did, and he said, you know, if your daughter wants to become a chef, she should go to cooking school. And she should either go to the hotel school in Lausanne or the CIA, Culinary Institute. And I didn't want to go to Lausanne. That was too far. I didn't want to leave my boyfriend that far. So I applied to the CIA thinking they wouldn't take me because I didn't even know how to use a chef's knife. I didn't even know what I didn't know. But they did. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to leave. <laughs> so I went to my boyfriend. And I said, I don't think I want to do this. And he said, oh, I think you do. I want to see other women. Oh, well. So between yeah. being rejected by my boyfriend, no uh, better way to get over that than play with fire and knives. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So I went off to cooking school where there's all these cute young eighteen year olds, <laughs> you know, working class, salt of the earth, blue collar chefs. Yeah. And I had a great time, and um, yeah, and he proceeded to miss me and moved closer to Boston. That was him you just met. We've been married for thirty years. <laughs> he was right. We yeah. were too young to settle down. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, th- but the day I set foot, set toe into the CIA. I thought to myself, why did I wait this long? It yeah. was it was sheer heaven those two years. Just loved it. Well, heaven's the wrong word because it was, you know, it was rough too. It was mostly men, and they all told you you couldn't do it. All that usual stuff that women are subjected to when they go into a man's profession. Yeah, but I just loved. I loved learning all that stuff. I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, and it was more tactile than a history of ideas. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh no, no, no. It was very creative. Yeah. You know, it was. You know, it's much more creative now than it was then. When I think about it, years after I'd gone to the CIA. Well, about seven years after that, I taught. For Peter Kump's New York Cooking School, now ICE. And uh, I knew Peter Kump, and he's an unsung hero. He was really a great uh, leader and very interesting guy. But at any rate, in his classes, which I taught as regular technique classes, he taught taste. And when I was at the Culinary Institute, we didn't explore that. I mean, we, you know, it's not that you didn't taste your, you were told to season and, you know, taste as you went and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, like in his classes, we would taste, you know, flat leaf versus curly parsley and fresh cream cheese, fresh cream cheese versus processed cream cheese. We, one class very early on, you everybody made a vinaigrette with a three to one oil to acid yeah. ratio. But, and the oil was the same, but the acids were different. What a revelation. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, and that I hadn't even thought about it. And I've been working in the industry for seven years at that point. Yeah. So at any rate, they didn't teach us taste back then. Well, it was, I was just reading Lucky Peach. And um, I forget which chef uh, said this, but there's a discussion in the beginning of issue three. And one of the chefs says, uh, you know, 95% of cooking is technique. And that last 5% is seasoning. Yes. Um, because you can get so far by cooking by ratios. But then, you know, you have to know your own palate and the chef's palate that you work for and, you know, the, the patron's palate. But, yeah, there, there's that Very little bit true. that you have to have yourself. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, culinary school, where did you land after that? Well, because the boyfriend moved to Boston, I gave him one last chance. <laughs> so it, during my externship, you know, which was in between the two years, I had three months I had to go work in the field. I had a really hard time, but I managed to land myself a job at The Harvest, which you've told me you've worked there, <laughs> yeah. too. Everybody and their dog has worked at it's The Harvest. It's this hidden little in place Cambridge. in Harvard Square, yeah. now in that mall. I mean, it's just... So bizarre. Yeah. But everybody... At any rate, what was lucky is I got hired by a man, but he got fired before I got there. And when I landed, the chef was Lydia Shire. Oh, another woman who I've, uh, yeah, and, and been inspired she, by. And she really took me under her wing. Um, 
um, it's like I had a t- I, I worked the night cold station, um, so, which was really fraught because I had to open up all these clams and oysters. Yeah. And to this day, I'm terrible at it. Yeah. It's so traumatic. <laughs> but at the end of my shift, she was still doing the hot station, working the line. She she called me over. And I had a one-on-one t- tutorial. Like, this is how hot the pan should be before you add the meat. This is the sound it should make when the meat gets in the pan. These are the five elements you're balancing. This is how you, how it should look. The sauce should look when it's reduced enough. It was a really amazing experience to work with her. And then um, I went back to school, finished off, you know, my whatever um, time at school, and then went back. But by then, she'd gone. Her sous chef had become the chef, and I was hired as the sous chef, which was a job way over my yeah. head. And then... And so that was in September of 1977. Of course, I told you I was just 12. (laughs) And then um, the chef, my friend who'd hired me, went and nearly killed herself with a bottle of champagne a a week before Thanksgiving when we were totally booked and was out for three months. Yeah. So to the, any anytime anybody's opening up a bottle of champagne, it's like I will do that leap over the table to, to make sure they're open yeah. properly. Yeah. It, what is it? Twist the bottle, not the cork. Well, make sure it's chilled. Yeah. Make sure it's not cheap. Yeah. Do not point it at your eye. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> Don't be drunk when you're opening it either. Uh, yeah. And twist the bottle, not the cork. Yeah. It almost feels safer to saber it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and just hold it away from you and yeah. saber it. Why yeah. not? Although I, I understand it's not great for the wine. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but sure we're is talking fun. about safety here. Yes. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, you fell into this position um, totally underqualified. Well, I wouldn't say underqualified, but overwhelmed. Yes, exactly. Um, but I survived. Yeah, yeah. And my food cost was excellent. Yeah. I was very impressed with myself. Yeah. Uh, but we had a great team, you know. Um, so that made it easier for me. We were all one. And it was boys and girls. Yeah. I learned later on, because when I was a chef, later, much later at a restaurant called Sibel's, I hired all women, and that was a complete disaster. <laughs> I mean, I'm a feminist to the core, but that was a mess. We all got on the same cycle, and once a month, we were either screaming at each other or crying on the back steps. Just close it down. Yeah. Just close it, it down. bad news. So uh, You did a postgrad apprenticeship, left the States, went over to France. Right. Well, what had happened was, I, I've done so much, I mean, it was I'm classic, I was always in the right place at the right time after the harvest i went and worked at a catering company and while i was there i met a woman who had worked on julia child's show pbs show and i managed to get myself a job on her show on julia's show and julia really mentored me and decided after our three-month time together that i really should go to france and get more training which did not appeal to me at all because i'd already been tortured by French men at cooking school so why did I want to go work with a whole bunch of men again but do you say no to Julia Child when yeah. she gets you an apprenticeship hell no so I went over and worked at a one star restaurant um, behind the scenes for three months what was annoying was I was a chef of a restaurant then I became chef of this restaurant Sibel's I took a three month leave of absence is he wouldn't let me work the line the chef owner he was 76 short fat bald and ugly which is relevant because he'd been cute and young I wouldn't have cared <laughs> but the second half of the equation was not only would he not let me work the line I'm on our day off, he chased me around the wine cellar. So I was doubly insulted. Yeah. But I stuck it out, and I learned a ton. Yeah. What was the difference between New England cooking and French cooking at that time? Well, it wouldn't be just New England. It would just be American cooking yeah. and French cooking. Um, attention to detail, attention to excellence. Uh, again, food costs huge. 
At times, I wished he'd throw something out. He had this little amuse that he would serve at the beginning of every meal. It was, he called it a pizza, and right. it was pastry that they had. But they take all the leftovers. It was like surf and turf yeah. thrown into the filling. And I was like, no, don't put that <laughs> in, too. So little bits of sweet bread and flounder yeah. and shrimp and other things. I'd be like, no, don't do it. It's funny. The first bite you're giving them is the, the, the bite from the other night. Yeah, yeah. from oh, many nights. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, sort of horrifying. But really... They were great recipes, and, and really, everything had to be done just so. I did learn how to make souffle, pomme souffle, you know, those oh, yeah. things that puff up like pillows. Oh, yeah. Uh, I haven't done that all that much since, but, um, I, you know, learned a lot of different things and uh, was very impressed with the way the French live and eat, and I still am, yeah. actually. And you came back to New York to work in a French restaurant. Well, actually, let me see. After that, I went back and finished up my time at the Cibels. Yeah. And then uh, the husband, well, almost to be husband, uh, that nasty boyfriend, <laughs> um, dragged me back to New York because he's in the music industry. Yeah. And uh, Boston's a lovely town, but it's a racist town. And his specialty was black music. So yeah. he dragged me back to New York in 81, and I decided, now I'm going to go get the big job. Yeah. You know, instead, because I was in over my head that whole time. So I'm going to go pursue all the best restaurants in New York and get a line cook job. If that's all I can yeah. get, that's what I want to get. But nobody would have me. And why? They were all French men. Yeah. And uh, I even had an interview with Andre Sultner, which I've discussed with him recently. He doesn't remember, of course. <laughs> I had an introduction, by the way, to all these guys through yeah. Julia. So they had to meet with me. And he, anyway, so when I met with him, he was totally charming, but didn't have a job for me. And I went back to my girlfriend had taken me, and she was a chef down in, at a place called Cafe New Amsterdam on West 4th Street. And I went back to work with her, and one of her waiters said, Oh, you went to, you know, Sultner's place to Lutest to interview? He said, You're crazy. He said, I've heard Andre say on more than one occasion, because this guy used to work there, he'd rather close his restaurant than hire a woman, yeah. front or back of the house. Now, recently, because I've gotten to know Andre, yeah. um, I reminded him of this, and he actually was really, really sad. And mm-hmm. he said, yes, I know, that's how I was. I just didn't know any better at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But you felt that there was a change happening. Uh, gender roles were kind of opening up, and uh, there were positions for women. Well, no, not really. Yeah. No, not really. I ended up, by default, at a restaurant where there was a woman chef, and when I say by default, she didn't want to hire me either, because <laughs> she said she was the only woman in the kitchen, she wanted to keep it that yeah. way. She was an older woman, um, and I probably learned more from her than anybody else. And this was at La Tulipe? La Tulipe, Sally Dar. Yeah. And uh, probably most of what I know about pastry I learned from her, because she was amazing. At pastry and the recipes there were great, and so it was fine. But it, 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 I still feel like we've only recently, maybe in the past ten years, turned a corner in New York City. California's always been far more forward-thinking. You know, when I used to meet young women who were going to cooking school and they'd ask for advice, I'd say, "Head west, young lady," <laughs> because even the men out there in California are nicer to women in the kitchen. Yeah, but there's plenty of women who are running kitchens out there too. But New York was in a lockdown with French chefs, and I'm a complete francophile. Yeah, but they wouldn't they wouldn't let it loosen up. They wouldn't let women in. They wouldn't let a lot of non-French or non-European men in. And finally, they lost their stronghold because nobody was interested in those restaurants anymore. And so, you know, other chefs, new American chefs started coming in and it opened up for women. And now, thank God, we've got all these great women chefs. You know, it used to drive me crazy when you'd see an article in the Daily News or the Post, where are all, or even the New York Times, where are all the women chefs? I'd be like, they, they, there's no room for them. They're not allowed, yeah. you know? How could there be a woman chef here? They've been kept Where out. are all the jobs for women chefs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. but now it's really changed. Yeah, yeah. well, we're going to take a quick break and come back. Um, 
and talk about how you formed the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Yes. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Sarah Moulton. Um, and we were just talking about ladies. Yes. <laughs> we were talking about all the ladies not in the kitchen, trying to get in the kitchen. Right. Um, and the formation of the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. What was that and what was the impetus behind it? Well, back when I was in Boston in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we all hung out a lot with Julia Child. She was sort of a den mother or whatever but we get together on a regular base regular basis to do fundraisers for Planned Parenthood or various things and um, we had so much fun we were like we should make this more formal so while I was in Boston we formed a group called the Boston Women's Culinary Guild and it was a great group except we made two mistakes one is we didn't require you to be professional and two we didn't require you to be active so I was a member I was on the founding board of that and I guess it existed for about two years before I left you know, Boston, and then I came to New York, and I was lonely, like, so lonely, yeah. <laughs> because there's all these men who wouldn't let you into kitchens, and, you know, I had some girlfriends, but um, I thought, you know, it'd be really great if we could do that here, and um, Carol Brock, who founded Les Dames d'Escafier, which is a women's group yeah. here, but you have to be invited to join, and I was too young and too inexperienced for them to ask me, said, why don't I, and the reason she asked me is because I actually won a scholarship from Les Dames d'Escafier when I graduated from cooking school, so I was on their radar screen, so she said, why don't you form a baby dames? Baby Les Dames. <laughs> you didn't want to call it Baby Dames? Well, I, yeah. I did, but the, no, they, yeah. they didn't. But anyway, meanwhile, I'd met all these people at Gourmet Magazine because the chef de cuisine at La Tulipe was married to an editor at Gourmet Magazine, and she and I become great friends. Mariah Rose, she's not 
French, and he is. She is. Yeah. Any rate, so she and I become great friends, and she introduced me to all these other gourmet folks, and so we all sort of liked each other and got together and sort of came up with this plan about forming the baby dames. The trouble was that Carol hadn't really informed the board of Les Dames that we were going to do this, so we went to present to them. Interestingly enough, in the house where I grew, not the house, the building where I grew up, one Lexington Avenue, uh, with that was the head of the board. Um, so we go in to make our presentation. And they were all so angry at us, at me and Mariah, because how dare we think that we could be, start a baby dames? Does that mean that when we turned 30, we'd become a grand dame? Yeah. So they said, no, we're not remotely interested. And I was thrilled. Mariah was so pissed off. Yeah. And she was a nice southern girl. So we go out to Gramercy Park, and she's like swearing. I was like, whoa, I didn't know you had this in you. But I was like, Mariah, you don't understand. This is so cool. Now we can form our own group. So we formed the New York Women's Culinary Alliance in 1982. And it's still going. We're about to have our 30th anniversary. And um, amazing group. And we, we learn from those mistakes. You have to be active and you have to be a full-time professional. I'd hoped it'd be a lot of chefs, but chefs don't have time to be active yeah. in a group. So it's quite an interesting mix. We do have some chefs, but we have food writers, photographers, PR people, wine people. And our feeling is we'll take you right out of cooking school, as long as you work a minimum of 35 hours per week in the food industry and you live in the tri-state area. But you also have to be active. And it's a really terrific group for networking and education. We have all these programs. I'm in a book group now. It's really fun. Yeah. But I, you know, now I can go for years. I couldn't go to anything because I worked too much. But now I'm going to a lot of them. And there's mentoring programs. It's really a great group. Yeah, see, that's the key word, mentoring programs. That, yeah. This was something that wasn't there for you no. for so long that you came to, you know, support a new generation of female chefs and, you know, entrepreneurs in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. So that that's fantastic. Um, you mentioned gourmet. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to gloss over that because for how many years did you work for gourmet? 25. Yeah. The first four I worked in the test kitchen, testing, developing, and, and styling food for photography. And then the remaining, remainder of the time, I worked actually on the advertising side as chef at the executive dining room. Yeah. You'll appreciate this because you worked in restaurants, yeah. too. It, we only had 16 seats, so it's like having a little excellent restaurant with no food cost. Oh, yeah. I could do anything I wanted, and except, I mean... An, we made the magazine come alive, you know, so these poor, unsuspecting advertisers would come in and we'd give them two hors d'oeuvres, first course, main course, dessert, ply them with alcohol and hit them up for ad pages. Yeah. But it was really fun. <laughs> uh, and it kept it fresh for me because I was constantly having to make new recipes from the magazine and do new techniques from the magazine, you know, because you get in a rut. Yeah. But this way we had to keep doing it. So, so I mean, how collaborative were you with the editors of the magazine in well, creating new recipes? I, I had nothing to do with creating yeah. new recipes. I just represented them. Yeah. Not just in the dining room, but I did cooking demos and I did consulting with clients. At first I thought, wow, I sold my soul to the devil. I'm yeah. working with advertisers, but it ended up, we had great advertisers. Yeah. You know, they were Tony. So it ended up being a really interesting job. I loved it. Yeah. So, I mean, Talk about going from the back of the house to the front of the house. Um, not even front of the house, in front of the lens, in front of. Oh yeah, you that know, was the, never the, the supposed scope. to happen. You were at Gourmet. You were, you know, cooking for these advertisers. When did it turn that you were in front of the camera or on the radio and becoming some kind of a fountainhead for the magazine? Well, what happened was. Um, in 1981, when I moved to New York, Julia started working at Good Morning America. And what she would do is she'd come down with an entourage of people, and they'd tape like five or six segments. And I really missed her. So I said, well, let's have dinner, you know, one time when she was down. And she's like, oh, dearie, no, I've got too much work to do. I don't think I'll get done. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me come prep 
for you for free, and then maybe we can have dinner. So I did, and we had dinner, and the next day, Good Morning America hired me to start working with her. Yeah. Now, I could only do that briefly in 81, because I had another job. I forget which job it was. They didn't want me to, to do that. But then I picked up again in 87, and from 87 to 96, I did all the prep for all the chefs who appeared on Good Morning America. So I was really learning about food TV. I had already done a lot with Julia, but I was learning you know, how to produce the live segment food, so I'd style it um, when the producer wasn't there, I'd rehearse it with the chef. At any rate, so when Reese Schoenfeld, who's the guy who started the Food Network, was getting ready to start it, he had a meeting with me and Sue Huffman, um, who was somebody I'd known for years, a food editor at Ladies Home Journal. And they asked me if I wanted, if I would like to run the kitchen at the Food Network. And I turned it down because then I was working at Gourmet and I thought, well, that's too risky. That network yeah. <laughs> won't last. And then they said, well, would I like to be a food editor? And I was like, that's a desk job. And I don't, I'm a chef. And then they said, would you like to do on air? And I'd never wanted to. This is in 94. But I'd just been on Good Morning America. They put me on as their secret weapon. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can do that. So I went and tried out for a pilot. I was absolutely awful. Because <laughs> I was alone in front of the oh, camera. Can we see a copy of that someday? Oh, it's so yeah. awful. Oh, my God. Well, actually, I don't have a copy yeah. of that. But I do have a copy of Chef Du Jour. Yeah. So anyway, I did that. I flunked. They didn't invite me back. But then for some crazy reason, they invited me back to do Chef Du Jour, which was five half-an-hour shows. And for that, I got serious media training. I was still awful. Yeah. Um, but see, in the beginning of the Food Network, they didn't have any money. They were all TV people. They weren't food people. They could only work with what was happening in New York City. And somebody said I was a good teacher to them. So they, they gave me another chance. And then after I did that, I filled in for somebody who had a show and had to go on book tour. I did a couple of her shows. And then they hired me to do this live call-in show on a- starting April 2nd, 1996. I have to say, I'm probably the only Food Network person who learned on the job yeah. by sheer you know, numbers. It was every night, an hour-long show, Monday through Friday, for the first eight months. And then we went down to just Monday through Thursday, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I was pretty awful, but I got better. Hey, anybody would, yeah. you know, every night. And it was live call, and it was actually live. So I dropped it. I burned it. We got dirty phone calls. It was so much fun. <laughs> Do you remember that first phone call? The first dirty one? Yeah. Yes. Well, not the dirty one, but I'd love to hear about that, too. <laughs> I know. I don't remember the first phone call. Yeah. But the first dirty one was that first week. Yeah. Uh, and my first guest was my daughter. Yeah. She was nine. And that was pretty hairy, too. I had everybody and their dog on my show. Yeah. I mean, when you do, you know, 285 shows a year, you have to, you have, to you know, have everybody on. Yeah. So I had my mother and my father, never my husband. He didn't want to do that. We did a Valentine's Day show, and we did a cardboard stand-up of him. Because he wouldn't be, he wouldn't do it. But. So six years, 1,200 episodes later, Cooking Live ended in March of 2002. What did you do between 2002 and... Um, weekend meals well another show called sarah's secrets yeah um which was a tape show and the premise of the show to begin with was uh which i still like to do when i do live demos is to like do things that are really miraculous like a magic trick like there's a special way to slice an apple so that you can slice it really thin so that you can make a french apple tart what is the oh god it's gonna take (laughs) i don't think i can explain it on radio you cut you peel your apple you cut it through top to bottom you take out the core with a a melon baller and then you lay it flat and when you go to slice it you don't take your knife all the way down Mm -hmm. so that it's attached on one side so that you can slice it without the slices flying all over the place. Yeah, so like fanning it out, like people see in ornate like Chinese food platters. Right, yeah. but it's like if you use the two chopsticks, yeah. sometimes they do that to hold them on either side, yeah. and then you slice down, so it stays attached the whole time, then you just turn it on its side and loosen the slices. 
If gotcha. anybody got that at home, they're a genius. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that was the premise of that show. But we quickly ran out of tricks. So yeah. just <laughs> I sort of focused, as I always had on my other show, more on just helping people to get dinner on the table during the work week. Yeah. And then um, my time with the Food Network was over in 2005. They offed me. I would never have left them. And it was really pretty devastating. Uh, even though I said to everybody who was ever on my show, and believe me, a million people were discovered on my show. Mm-hmm. First time Anthony Bourdain was ever on TV was on my show. You know, um, who's the what's who's our wonderful man from Cleveland right now? Who's Michael on, Simon? Yeah, he yeah. was on a regular on my second show. I did a second live show yeah. for a while. Gail Gand, Michael Lamonaco, Ming Tsai, You know, uh, so many people. And I used to always say to them, "Don't think this is going to happen last forever. Yeah. Keep your day job." But when that didn't last forever, I was like, it, it really was really devastating. It's yeah. funny, because I never thought I wanted to, to be on air, but when it went away, I was really sad. So what was the transition to public television like? Well, you know, I wouldn't have minded getting back on some sort of network TV, but by then, everywhere was heading towards reality shows and sort of the kind of stuff that I'm not good at. I don't do that. It's just not me. I'm a teacher. So um, Gourmet agreed to help to find the funding, and they did, uh, because they got advertising out of it, too. So we managed... Season one was in 2008. Yeah. But it started airing in 2008. We taped it in 2007. But, you know, at that point, you can't... 2008, you couldn't ask anybody for money. They weren't even picking up the phone. Yeah. And at that point, Gourmet was beginning to struggle for its life in terms of advertising, so they couldn't help me anymore. So um, and that's why it took us all the way to 2011 to get funding for season two. So yeah. We taped it in July of last year. It started airing in October. And how I did that was a friend of mine reached out to me after Gourmet tanked in October of 2009. And uh, she mentioned at our lunch, we had lunch, that she'd done fundraising for Jock and Julia's show. And I said, ah, oh, Stephanie. It's Stephanie Faison, yeah. who's a good friend. Uh, yep, I know who she is. Yes, yeah. married to George Faison. Yeah, yeah. Any rate, and so she went and raised the money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's, she's been great. She's been an angel. Yeah. Public television has definitely given you a different form than what Food Oh, Network I love did. it. I'm in the driver's seat. Yeah. So what do you get to say there that you didn't on Food Network? Whatever I want. Yeah. I mean, no swear words and don't, well, not that I would anyway, yeah. but, uh, and don't mention product names, you know, which I love. You yeah. Know, you can't say I love such and so. Although yeah. sometimes I think it's very helpful, and I used to do it on the Food Network when we could, you know, I'd say I like this brand, like I love King Arthur Flower, yeah. I love, you know, this particular brand because I think it's helpful to people, but no, you can... I'm really in charge. I'm in the driver's seat. I co-own it with my partner, Natalie Gustafson. And um, I can call the shots. I can say, no, you didn't get that angle. Or I really want to show the difference between English cut uh, short ribs and flanken. Yeah. And so you need to get right close up and see the difference. And then I'll, you know, so it's really fun. Um, Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Do you think this is geared just towards the home chef, or do you think you're helping professionals too now? Oh, you never stop learning. Yeah. I mean, anytime I don't watch a lot of TV and I don't watch a lot of food TV. I don't watch any TV except yeah. for the nightly news in the office. But anytime <laughs> I happen to uh, tune in for some reason, I always learn something. Yeah. I mean, almost always. I mean, there's some people who don't know how to cook who are teaching, you know, teaching. But even that, they, sometimes you learn something. Yeah, I mean, it's not like these hosts are unmerited, too. So going and watching a home cook on air or someone that's geared towards, uh, you know, educating the home cook has a foundation. Oh, I think yeah. home cooks, you know, when I worked at Gourmet in the Test Kitchen, I was really impressed by home cooks. And also when I did the live show, because I talked to people all around the country. And what struck me was that home cooks cook you know if they cook a lot they, they cook the same thing over they perfect it just like professional chefs 
um, only they cook it for a family, whereas a chef cooks one dish at a time, or if they're a caterer, they cook 700 dishes at a time. But that home cooks perfect their skill, they hone their skills, just like a, a a professional chef yeah and they should be respected sometimes i think they figure out things that professional chefs wouldn't even consider yeah but don't you think those two things are kind of amalgamating the way chefs are trying to cook is more like a home chef now yes absolutely yeah absolutely and recapture i mean you know we're never going to get away from comfort food and i love it as yeah. long as it doesn't kill you yeah you know, it can't always be over the top fattening but yeah yeah i think so yeah excellent um before we go <laughs> i have to take a look. yeah yeah sip here big big nod to uh James Beard Foundation nominee, Sarah Moulton. Why, thank you. Yes, I was nominated yesterday for Best National TV Host slash Personality, and you were nominated (laughs) yesterday, too. Tell us about that. That that will be for another radio show. uh, No, no, no. I want you to say briefly what it was uh, for. For visual storytelling for my Back of the House series in Edible Manhattan. That's so cool. But it's just uh, so unbelievable to be in such company. Yes. And so very humbled by being able to receive that right now well you, and, yeah. you worked hard for it thank you and being able to sit next to you and congratulate each other on work well done so thank you again for being on there's so much to draw out of this interview and from your past and perseverance and multimedia that you know uh, th- this really proves that there isn't one route to uh getting to your you know position in the kitchen, out of the kitchen, in the culinary world. So, yeah, very inspiring. Thank you again, Sarah. Thank you, Michael. Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.